Hey, this is Pastor Sam. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our sermon series from the book of Ruth called The Broken Road to Glory. I pray that this resource will be helpful for you as you make disciples in community and on mission throughout our city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, have, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these were the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we, we have been preaching, we're in week four of our sermon series in the book of Ruth. We have been preaching through the book of Ruth, which is a tremendous little book. I, I have significantly, significantly grown my appreciation um, for this book over the last three or four weeks. Um, and we've tagged this sermon series, The Broken Road to Glory. And, and what we've been noticing over the past three weeks, what we've been doing, instead of jumping to the end of the story, we've been going chapter by chapter as, as the author gives us, and we've been 
looking at some of the subplots, the sub-narratives that have been going on and trying to glean from those, and today we finally come to the conclusion of the book, which allows us to look at the whole scope of the book and really ask the question, what is the book of Ruth all about? Now, what I hope you've been picking up on as we've been going through here is that Ruth's story, the story of Ruth, is really your story. The story of the broken road to glory is really a story that you share with Ruth. The details are different. The people, the characters may have been exchanged, but the plot's still the same. Because we all face these unexpected twists and turns in life. There's some days we wake up and wonder like, how did I get here? What is God doing? How How did I get to this place? And sometimes in, in, in the twists and the turns, it, it might seem like God's absent, or at least quiet. Because like, we're, we're here, maybe we've been able to enjoy some of the triumphs of life, but, but we've also faced a great deal of tragedy. We've got pain and brokenness and sorrow in our lives. And so we, we might be wondering, like, where, God, where are you in all this? And maybe, maybe you're in a season like that right now, where it feels like God just is quiet, It's just you, you're lonely, you're trying to make it through. I think when we get to that place, we we start asking like really big questions. They're simple questions, but big questions. We're wondering, will this all work out? Like, is my life going to pan out? Is this gonna turn a corner? Am I going to, to, to see things get better or is it just gonna be more of the same? And depending on your disposition, if if you have ignorant optimism where you just say, oh yeah, everything's gonna get better. It's, it's all uphill from here. You know, it's all gonna get better from here. You might say, yeah, yeah, it's gonna definitely get better. It's like, how do you know? Nobody knows. Or if you're like myself, you, you tre- t- trend toward just cynicism. Like, oh man, this is, this is it. This is as good as it gets. But really, There's only one way. There's only one way to know for sure how things are gonna shake out in your life. And the story of Ruth points us towards that certainty. She actually gives us, the story tells us, it points us toward the reality that we can find certainty, we can find a concrete hope in the midst of uncertainty in this life. Now, if you've been with us, you'll recall with me the story of Ruth is steeped in uncertainty. And, and if you're just joining us, let me, let me catch you up on what's going on because you gotta hear what's going on to make sense of this ending. In fact, this, the story of Ruth opens up with this family who is in a, a predicament. They, they live in Bethlehem, which is a, a region of Israel. Um, they're living there in God's land among God's people and they face a famine and they come to this point where they've got to decide, are we gonna stay here and stick it out and trust that God's gonna be faithful and provide for us or are we gonna jump ship, right? And so they, they decide to jump ship. They move away from Bethlehem at, when this famine hits. They move to a land called Moab, which is a pagan land. Uh, this is not where God's people reside. God's, God's presence is not there. Um, in, in a sense, in, in like the most uh, localized sense where God is dwelling with his people in, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Um, they leave God's land, they leave God's people, they're chasing the good life in a foreign land. They, 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 they separate themselves from the blessing of being with God and his people and chase something else. And, and, and even in this act of rebellion, God is gracious to them. God, God blesses this family. So we set out with uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. They have two boys, um, gosh, Malon and Kilion. It's like some Klingon names, I don't know. In fact, this whole, this chapter has a lot of, if you're looking for baby names, like this, this is some, some real gems in here. Um, so they set out with their boys. They make it to Moab. God blesses them. Uh, the boys are able to marry, and they meet a chick named Orpah and Ruth. Um, God is gracious to them, but Elimelech dies. The, the, the father, the patriarch, he dies shortly after the two boys, uh, Kilion and Malon, they die. And so what we have left here is Naomi, who's 
She's getting up there in age. She's not like a decrepit old woman because she's got to make quite the journey, so we know that. But, but she's older. She's, towards, she's on the second half of her life, not on the first half. And she's left with Ruth and Orpah. Now, in ancient times, women were vulnerable. It was very much a male-dominated era. Um, and so the stability for a female basically rose and fell on having a husband or somebody in their family to look after them. And so here we have three women who don't have any husbands anymore, um, who, with Naomi living in a foreign land, she, she's an outsider, and so they're very vulnerable. It's a very unstable life for them. And here in the midst of Moab and sort of the dysfunction of their life, Naomi hears that God has visited his people in Bethlehem. He has blessed them. The famine has ended. There's a, a, an abundant harvest coming forth. And so Naomi decides to go back to God. She, she says, you know what, God, like, like literally, this is maybe one of the most beautiful pictures of repentance of she walked away from God. She left the land where God and his people dwelt and she moved into a pagan country and now she's saying, God, I, I see your hand over here and so she turns and moves back to God. Now in this, um, Naomi tries to like, relieve her daughter-in-laws of the responsibility of going with her. She says, you guys can go off. And, and so Orpah actually stays at home, um, but Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. She says, I'm, wherever you go, I'm gonna go. Your home will be my home. Your God is my God. So it looks like Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth had some sort of conversion experience where even in the midst of uh, Elimelech and Naomi's disobedience, they have shared the gospel or shared the good news of Yahweh and what he has done to save his people. And, and Ruth hears about this, has a conversion experience, and she wants to be with God and his people. Now, even in this scenario, you, you, might, you might relate to this, okay? Like, there are some people in this room who you know, man, I, I, I have veered from God. Maybe it's been a year, five years, 10 years since you even stepped foot in a church. And what started out as a desire to catch a couple extra hours of sleep has sort of snowballed into a pursuit of finding some satisfaction, some sort of happiness, some sort of joy in what the world has to offer. And eventually, if you're on that trajectory, eventually you'll find out how empty, how little the world has to offer you. And so when you realize that, where do you turn? What do you do? Billy Graham used to talk about the God-sized hole in your heart. What do you do? You, You turn back to God. I guess I should start going to church again. Some of you are sort of in that story right now. That's part of your story that, that I am ready to turn back to God. And I just want to say praise God. And maybe, maybe this is like, maybe this has been a fight for you that, that you feel God pulling or maybe this is a first time thing. You've, you've heard the gospel and you're coming to, back to God and you're being with God. And listen, I want you to know that if this is you, God's arms are wide open. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15 uh, of the prodigal son, of a son who says, you know what, dad, I don't want anything to do with you. Give me my inheritance. I want to live life my own way. Eventually, that son realizes how broken his paradigm for living is, and he says, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. I guess I could go back and live with my dad and be a hired hand with him. And, and, and in that moment, like, you can anticipate in that story, like, that son is feeling uh, a sense of fear. Like, what's gonna happen? Is my dad gonna disown me? Is he gonna push me out? Is he gonna say, you know, that, that's the lifestyle you chose. Now go live that way. No, no. Well, the son goes back. And the father has his arms wide open. He runs to him. That is the picture that we have of God. When we turn and go be with and wanna pursue God, God is already pursuing us. His arms are wide open. So lean into that. But listen, I, I realize just like the prodigal son, that this can be a scary thing. There might be some shame involved, some guilt, just an unnerving thing to turn and go back to God because this question mark, is God gonna be angry with me? He's upset? It's a scary thing. Now, it was a scary thing also for Naomi and Ruth. Now, we we know, like, based on what Luke 15 tells us, that that it shouldn't be a scary thing. It's a delightful thing. God's arms are open. But it can be a scary thing 
And Naomi and Ruth, they experienced this, but they stepped out in faith. That they took the next best steps and moved towards God. Your next best step, it might mean like setting an alarm clock for every week at nine o'clock so you can be here. So you can hear what God is saying to his people. Your next best step might be jumping into a missional community so you can interact with other people who are on the same road as you, trying to pursue God in everyday life. But Naomi and Ruth, they took their next best step, they stepped out, and as they step up, we have to realize that they're in a sensitive spot. That they're raw, uh, they're feeling alone, they're, they're Situation is very unstable. Um, they're both recently widowed. There's a lot of instability in the scenario. And so for women in this time, what they really needed, what they needed to get by and to live a functional life were, were two things. They need food and they need family. And what those two things, the very basic basic needs that everybody shares, but those two things represent provision, the fact that you'll be provided for, that you're not gonna starve to death, but also protection. You've got a family member who's looking after you, who's caring for you. And if you don't have that, especially in ancient Israel, life was really difficult. And so they set out looking for food and for family. Um, and as Naomi and Ruth, they get there, it just so happens that barley harvest begins. Okay, it, the as the story is narrated, there's a lot of coincidental language used. It makes it seem like, oh, just by happenstance, this is happening. Okay, well, it just so happens that barley harvest, they're looking for food, and here's a harvest. And then it just so happens that the, the field that Ruth finds herself in is trying to glean food from the fields and, and kind of create a storehouse for her and Naomi to survive is Boaz's field, who happens to be a relative of Naomi, who happens to be a kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about that in a minute if, if you're not familiar with that. But what we see throughout the story is, is really a character profile of both Boaz and of Ruth. We see Boaz is a good man. He is a godly man. He's a man that every man in this room should look at and say, man, in some ways I really aspire to be like him. He's generous. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's responsible. He can hold down a job. He's honest. And it just so happens that he's single. And then we see Ruth, who's beautiful. And, and actually, she's got a reputation that precedes her beyond her beauty, that she's trustworthy and loyal, ingenuitive. She's hardworking. She's smart. She's got all of these beautiful characteristics that go beyond the, the surface level of beauty and really deep down to the heart. In fact, there's this question in Proverbs 31 of, of where can you find a godly woman? I told you this last week. In the Hebrew Bible, following Proverbs 31 comes the book of Ruth. Ruth is that godly woman. That she embodies a sense of biblical womanhood that just radiates God's glory. And she happens to be single. And so we see these two single people who are good people. There's something winsome about them. There's something attractive about them and we see them out in the fields working shoulder to shoulder and, and as we read this, there seems to be some sort of a hint of romance. Like It seems like uh, they just coincidentally are compatible for one another. Yet, as the story goes, this relationship doesn't really materialize. The harvest is coming to an end. Boaz hasn't really stepped up to, to engage. You know, maybe if there's one thing that, fellas, that we could learn from Boaz is like, you know, put yourself out there a little bit. But we see that though that they're compatible, though there's a hint of romance, it doesn't materialize. Now, if you're single, what, what this, this story actually serves as a really good point of reference for us, like as far as the type of spouse, the type of uh, partner you should be looking for, what are the characteristics, and really if you wanna break it down, there's, there, I think there are three things, three big things that, that kind of function as a, a foundation of a godly, Jesus-honoring marriage. One is compatibility. We see the godly character of Boaz, the godly character of Ruth. They both are evenly yoked. They both love Jesus. We can say that. They both are 
concerned with doing what is right and abiding uh, by God's way, that they are evenly yoked and so they're compatible. They want to live to honor God. Like that, that's their number one thing. They're compatible in that sense. Two, they're complementary. Boaz brings out the best in Ruth and Ruth brings out the best in Boaz. When you're looking for a mate, when you're looking for a future spouse, what you should be looking for is somebody who's gonna help you become the best version of yourself. And the only way that you can do that is by becoming your true self in Christ. This isn't something that self-help books can get you with. Not, not even like the best marriage books can help you do. It's something that has to happen through the Spirit's work in becoming who you were made to be in Christ. And so they're complementary to each other. They bring out the best in one another, but they're also, we see this as they're, three, is they're committed. Right? There's not this wishy-washy, hot and cold sort of ebb and flow within their character. We see that Ruth proves an extraordinary, extraordinary loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, I love my mother-in-law, but not the way that Ruth loves her mother-in-law. She is extraordinarily devoted to Naomi. And we see that Boaz is the same way. He's committed. He's a man of his word. What he says, he does. He takes action. His yes is a yes. His no is a no. There's not this wishy-washy stuff going about it. They're not, they're not you know, going to the, jump into the greener pastures. They're able to say, here's my word. Here's my commitment. That's the type of person you need. And when these three big characteristics are present in a relationship, we see that this is the foundation for a good, godly, life-giving marriage, the marriage that you dreamed of. I mean, it's not like, it's not a fairy tale marriage because we're all sinners, right? You, you get married and you're married to another sinner and so you got your sin compounded by their sin and so there is a level of difficulty and challenge and just rub that happens within a marriage but if these are your foundations, you're committed to Jesus, you're committed to one another, you're compatible, you're evenly, yo, this is the start of how to grow and to be sanctified and to enter into a great marriage. Now the temptation here is to just sit back and wait. If you're a single person, to just sit back and wait for that person to kind of cross your path. Now there, there is definitely something to be said about patience and waiting, but it is not a stagnant wait. It's, it's an active wait. See, in your waiting for that person, that, that godly man or woman, for God to, to bring across your path, what you need to be concerning yourself with is the work of becoming the person that would catch that other godly person's eye. This is the best way to spend your singleness. It's to grow in the gospel, to, to really give yourself to becoming a godly, upright, moral, kind, compassionate person. Now, man, this means that in this season of singleness, you need to take responsibility. You need to go get a job and keep it. Like, give yourself to a career. Work hard. Use your youth. Exert it to, to move and create some sort of stability for yourself and your future family. Find a way to serve the church. See, the, the church is really the best training ground for marriage. Enter relationships with people. Give yourself freely to them. Learn discipline. Pursue God. Stop looking at porn and set your mind on things above. Man up. It's so interesting. When, when Paul ends 1 Corinthians, he's talking to a bunch of like, like literally a jacked up church. It seems like he's talking to a bunch of junior high boys who have no moral compass. And at the end of that letter, he says, act like men. Men. Act like men. And ladies, in your singleness, learn to be content in your identity in Christ. It's hard. Like, 
Mo- not all women, but, but a lot of women and men too are, are just wired with a deep desire of having that companion. And there's a sense where you can base your identity, you can base your entire life on finding or having or keeping that person in a way where you become less and less of yourself and your life becomes more and more dependent upon them. The way to fight that is to know who you are in Christ. And as you are content in Jesus, then you learn what type of a godly man you should be looking for then you're actually able to pray for that type of man. And I feel like one of the, one of the tragedies, there's two tragedies. One is how slow it takes for juvenile adolescent boys to grow up and really aspire to biblical manhood. That's a tragedy. <clears throat> the other tragedy is how quickly godly women settle for ungodly men. It's sad because it's just so desire to have that. And they can have that relationship in Christ and then he brings around the right guy. <clears throat> so here's the deal, men be men. Ladies, learn to be content in your identity in Christ and wait. And so when God does bring that right person across your path, you guys are ready for each other. See, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the misconceptions, holy moly, my throat's Uh, one of the misconceptions is that the church is just for married people. You know, it's easy for singles to step in the room and be like, well, there's only like a couple of singles. I don't know if I fit in here. And there's some, there's some, there's a bit of reality to that. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But the church is the perfect training ground. It's the perfect incubator for singles to become marriage material. So we wanna invite you to be part of what we're doing, to see some of the godly marriages that God is growing here, but also for you to develop in your singleness. Now, I took a lot of time on that. That was a special, I feel like single people, you're, you're neglected often, and so that was for you. Um, as the story moves on, that was a big sidetrack side here. As the story moves on, chapter three, we see Naomi presents to Ruth a very sketchy plan because at the end of the harvest is coming, the opportunities are dwindling away for Ruth and Boaz to really hit this thing off because everybody's got their fingers crossed. Hopefully this, this relationship launches off the ground here and Naomi rolls out this sketchy plan to expedite the romance of Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. And here at the threshing floor, Ruth risks everything her reputation that precedes her. She's risking being cursed instead of blessed, and she requests to be, that Boaz would marry her and be to her the kinsman redeemer. Now, the kinsman redeemer, we talked about this, but I know it's not a concept that's familiar in our context, but this is this idea that, that um, for example, I've got three younger brothers, or no, I've got two younger brothers, that's false. I've got two younger brothers, if I'm back in ancient Israel, if I get married, I die, my younger brother has an obligation to marry my wife and provide an heir to my inheritance. It's kind of weird. Makes doesn't really fit our, our parameters today, but that's how they did it. It's, it's a way that that woman, that widow could be taken care of and provided for. The, the name, the family name is continued on and carried on, um, and so this is how God had designed this kin, kinsman-redeemer relationship to redeem the land, to redeem the widow, and to give an heir for the inheritance. Now Boaz, at the request of Ruth, he's blown away. He, he can't believe that Ruth would be so bold and to ask such a thing. It's like literally, you think it's weird for a woman today in this like woman power era to propose marriage to a husband. It's even more shocking, even more absurd, even more outlandish in this ancient Israel context. And she steps out in courage and says, will you redeem us? Will you, will you spread your garment over me? Will you be our kinsman redeemer? And Boaz says yes. It's incredible. He's, he blesses her. He says yes. And everybody's like, yes, it's gonna happen. And he goes, but wait, there's another dude. 
There's somebody else who's next in line to function as the kinsman redeemer. And so that's where chapter three leaves off. Leaves off. That's where we left off last week where it's like the suspense. Like is the formality, is, God, is, is Boaz's godly character going to get in the way of this happy ending of he and Ruth? And that's kind of the predicament that we find ourselves in a lot of the times. Like, if, is doing the right thing going to stop me from getting what I want? And Boaz is willing to put it on the line. He says, I'll go, I'll go ask this guy. And so here's where chapter four picks up. I'm telling you, there's a lot of backstory here. We gotta do it. But chapter four picks up right here. After Boaz sends Ruth away from the threshing floor, he gives her some grain and says, hey, go back. You're not gonna go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Go back to Ruth and I'm gonna work this out and, and make sure um, that you have your kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz takes action right away. Just as, as Ruth leaves the threshing floor, he goes to the gates of the city and he sits and he waits to find this kinsman redeemer, this anonymous guy. He's, he's, he's got no name in the story. Um, and so Boaz goes, he happens to find him at the city gate and he says, hey, hey fella, um, I got this scenario I, I wanna lay out for you. And so he grabs um, some of the elders of of Bethlehem, and he lays out this scenario for him um, in verse three of chapter four. He says, then Boaz said to this redeemer, this is Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, that's her late husband of Moab, uh, Elimelech, and so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, the elders, and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And this dude, this anonymous guy says, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it. Now what's, what's going on here? This, this guy says yes to this proposal. You know, he says yes, and that all of the romantics in the room are saying no. Like, dude, go home. This is Boaz's chick. Like, let them be. Let them have their happy ending. Um, and, and it gives a sense, like, may, maybe nice guys do finish last. Now, the guy says yes because this is a financially lucrative scenario for him. It, it's a, a low-commitment, high-reward scenario as he hears it presented to him because all he hears is, I just gotta take care of this old lady and see her off, make sure she's provided for, and then what I gain is a lot of wealth, a lot of land. He's like, this sounds like a great deal. But then Boaz says there's more in verse five. He goes on, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's that kinsman redeemer language that we were talking about. Now that, this is where the catch is because Things flip in the deal. The, the deal changes from being a low commitment, high reward sort of scenario to being a high commitment, potentially high reward, although the way he frames it and looks at it, he looks at it like it's a low reward because he's saying, my inheritance of my own children will be compromised because of this marrying Ruth. And so he says, you know what, no, no thank you, I'm gonna pass on this um, because he wants, he's looking out for his own financial uh, provisions, and he says, you know what, I'm gonna pass, and so he tells Boaz that Boaz can have Ruth, he can purchase the land from Naomi and function as the kinsman redeemer, and then in verse seven through eight, there's this really weird exchange of a sandal, again, something that doesn't really register on our cultural ra radar, like you, you go over to somebody's house and you leave your sandals at the door, you don't know what you're guaranteeing here like uh, among these people, so it's like, it's really strange, um, but they have this exchange where they seal the deal. Boaz announces, delightfully announces his acquisition in verses nine through 10. He says, you, speaking of the people, the elders, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I've brought, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now you can imagine Boaz is excited. He, he's 
like what he was hoping for is coming true. He's, he's delighted now, but this needs to be unpacked a little bit because this sounds really strange to our modern ears because we see what's happening is this transaction where it seems like he's buying Ruth as a wife. It's like what? She's some sort of property? What, what is this? But that's not what hap- is happening here. In fact, it, it's the opposite. Boaz, first of all, he sees Ruth's vulnerability. He sees that, that she's in a very sensitive, unstable circumstance, and he is stepping in. He is putting his own resources, his own wealth on the line to step in and take care of her. So he's doing this out of a sense of, of duty, out of being a kinsman redeemer. I, he's like, I'm the only one who can step into this. But two, we have to see that Boaz cares deeply for her. Like through this whole story, he's, he's attracted, he's taken a special liking to Ruth and he is motivated not only by duty but by love. Now this is the type of love that people thrive in. In our, in our society, we want a type of love that's all feelings. I wanna feel, I wanna feel like this forever. And, and you see it in the marriage vows that get exchanged uh, among the people who get married today. It was like, I love you and I love you, love you forever. And my feelings, my heart's ooshy-gooshy. And it's like, you know, this sort of like weird, bizarre, I'm always going to feel this way. And, and there's a sense where you want that in marriage, but if that's all your marriage is based on, then it's so topsy-turvy because our feelings are topsy-turvy. Like there's gonna be a day where you wake up and it's like, I don't feel this way about you. And so in that scenario, you want somebody who not only has an inkling of a feeling and desire for you, but also a sense of devotion. Somebody who's committed and and out of duty is saying, you know, I made this commitment, I made this covenant to love you even when I didn't feel like it. That's the type of love that marriages flourish in. And that's the type of love that Boaz has for Ruth. There's duty, but he's also motivated by love. And the townspeople, they hear of this, Boaz stepping in, they celebrate, and they pray a beautiful blessing over Ruth and Boaz. In verses 11 and 12, he says, then all the people who were gathered at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath, man, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young man. What they're saying here is like, we're praying that this woman would be a tremendous blessing not only to you but to our community. That the act that you did of redeeming this woman would make you prosperous not just in a, a financial way but in a way where your name is renowned among the people that you live with. Not just for children but notable and distinguished children. This is a huge blessing because those women that were mentioned that Rachel and Leah, those were the, the pillars, the female pillars of the tribe of Israel, of God's people. On verse 13, they get married just as Boaz promised that he would do at the threshing floor. Now, if you remember when Boaz sends Ruth away with that, the, the grain, he gives her six uh, portions of it. Now six in biblical language is a, a number of incompleteness. There, there's even this act of giving six is like there's more to be done here. And so here we see in verse 13 that Boaz completes his promise. Not only does he marry her like he said, but he would give her another kind of seed that fills her womb. That she would conceive and have a son and so she does, and then, and then the next few verses in verses 14 through 16 might seem kind of weird because though this is an, something that happens, that like God blesses Boaz and Ruth, the, the tension seems to be on Naomi. Take a look, verse 14. Then the women, those are the, the townswomen, said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now, 
this is kind of strange because like, wait, didn't Boaz and Ruth have this kid? Like, how, how is Naomi factored? Like, legally, with how this kinsman redeemer thing, this son would be viewed as Naomi's son, that, that, that Ruth functioned as a sort of surrogate mother in order to provide Naomi an heir. Now, we see Naomi becomes a nurse. It's likely that Ruth and Boaz raised this child as if they were their own, but, but legally it was viewed as Naomi's child, her heir, that he would grow up, that he would be able to provide for her, restore life, and nourish her into her old age. But the reality is that all of this would have been impossible without the loyalty of Ruth. In fact, these ladies, when, when they're looking at Naomi's situation, they're praising God because God's given, them a, given her a son, an heir, but, but what they say is this, that, that not only has God given Naomi a son, but God has given Naomi Ruth, who is better than seven sons. Now that's a big deal. That's a huge compliment. Seven, again, the number of perfection, the number of completion. Huge deal especially in a patriarchal society, to say that this one woman is better than seven cents. Now, in this story, our eyes might get locked in on the characters of the story, and we might be tempted to applaud them, and there's a lot that we can commend about these people. Um, We can commend Naomi for her desire to return to God at the beginning of the story, Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, her ingenuity and hard work throughout chapters two and three. We can commend Boaz for his compassion and his generosity. We can even go on to the next section of the the of chapter four and look ahead to the next generation and to see who would come, the the lineage that would come from Ruth and Boaz and focus in on those people. But here as the book of Ruth closes, all attention is meant to be on God. And the women who are interacting with Naomi know this. They, They say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. They're pointing to God. They say, yeah, praise God for the blessings he laid out. Praise God for the story and the, that he's telling through you and the way that he's navigating. But look at what God has done for you. Even, even in the boy's name, which is Obed, which means servant or worshiper, even in himself, who's he serving? Who's he worshiping? He's worshiping God. He exists for God because of God. Now this story of Ruth is ultimately about God. He's sort of been behind the scenes He's been mentioned here and and there, but really what God has been doing is orchestrating things throughout this entire story. We see Ruth and Naomi and Boaz doing various things. It's God that's navigating this whole thing. And even though there's coincidental language used throughout the book, that this is no, there's no coincidences in this story. God has been at work. And we might need an aerial view to see what God has done throughout the story. So just quick, let me retrace his steps. First, God works to bring a rebellious family back into his fold. He woos Naomi and Ruth. Come back to my land. Come back and be with me and among my people. Then God provides abundantly for Ruth and Naomi in Boaz's field. Now Boaz happens to be a redeemer, happens to be a relative, Uh, happens to be single. God takes a sketchy plan that Naomi gives in chapter three and, and he uses it to bring about what God intends to bring about. He orchestrates the situation with this nameless redeemer that he would pass on the opportunity to acquire Naomi and Ruth and all of their land and inheritance. And and so Boaz becomes the most eligible candidate to be the kinsman redeemer. Boaz and Ruth get married. Um, In verse 13, the Lord gave her a son, which by the way, when she was married, that didn't happen earlier when they were Moab, but now it seems like maybe she was barren, maybe she wasn't, but God allowed for her to to conceive, and now they have a son, The prayer of verse 11 of the townspeople to be blessed, to be a pillar, to be worthy is actually a prophecy. That that this son, Obed, goes on to be a notable person in the fact he becomes the grandfather of King David. There's no one more notable in ancient Israel than King David. And so we see a story that starts in in uncertainty, a story that has a lot of tragedy, a lot of brokenness, where Naomi actually says at the beginning, God has 
sent me away full. He's brought me back empty. Um, my heart is bitter. Naomi's mean, name actually means pleasant, but, he, but he say, she says, call me Mara. That means bitter. I'm bitter. My heart is hard. And in this, God restores her life. God takes the brokenness that she experienced, all of the hardship, all of the pain, and he works it in a great reversal. So Naomi, who was once empty, is now filled up. She has Obed. She's got a grandson and heir. She has Ruth, who is worth seven sons. She has stability and provision and family, all the stuff that she was looking for in the good life and going back to Bethlehem. She has journeyed the broken road, and she has tears and heartaches to prove it. And now here, God has restored her, and she is living her best life. And when you think about it, Ruth and Boaz had their own difficulties too. And in the midst of all of this, God is restoring their brokenness as well. He's taking them on their broken road and leading them to glory. And what God does in Naomi's story, it's special, but it's not unique. You see, God is doing this all the time. God is restoring He's re-narrating our lives. He's taking our brokenness, our pain, our tears, and he's flipping them into glory. Now that might look like broken relationships for you, broken marriages, moral failures, unmet expectations, suffering, chronic suffering, physical issues, it could be a myriad of things that you feel, man, this is just my brokenness. This is the road that I'm traveling on and whatever you have encountered on the broken road and whatever lies before you on that broken road, God is using that for your good. God is using that for his glory. And the way that God does that is by providing an ultimate redeemer. Now here, here's the crazy part. There's no Naomi, there's no Ruth, no Naomi, no son, no Ruth, no famine, no leaving, no coming back, no Boaz, no Ruth and Boaz, no Obed, no King David, no Jesus. Because Jesus is is the true and better redeemer. See, Jesus comes from the line of David and God orchestrated all of these small things in this one little story to bring about the ultimate good of humanity, to give it Jesus, the true and better Boaz, a true and better redeemer who steps in, sacrifices himself, offers somebody who doesn't deserve it, somebody who's, who's experiencing a lot of uncertainty in life, offers us the good life where we were empty, where our hearts were empty, Jesus comes and he fills them up. We're told that he gives us every spiritual blessing, that we become co-heirs with Christ, that our inheritance is the kingdom of heaven, that where our sin had us bitter and mourning our future, Jesus now gives us a bright future, that he's taken our mourning and he's turned it to dancing, that Jesus has taken our loneliness, we're looking for a place to belong, and he has adopted us into God's family, that he has brought us into the family, he has given us people to be with, and God himself, where we were barren, unable to do good, we are now fruitful for every good work that God calls us to. And here's how he does this. He sent Jesus to get on the broken road for us. Jesus followed the broken path to its end point of futility, to the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus bought us out of sin. Now, this is to, here, here we see the perfect picture of marital love in both duty and of love. In duty, he was doing what the Father told him to do. But he did it because he loved us. And in going to the cross, he redeemed us from death and sin into a life of glory. He put us on the threshold of glory. And if you let him, 
If you look at what Jesus has done for you and you believe that he has paid the price for your sin, he's purchased you out of sin and has given you this incredibly bright future that you are on the threshold of glory, it can be yours. If your faith is in Jesus, your broken road is guaranteed to lead to glory. See, only then, only with your faith in Jesus will the deepest longings of your heart be fulfilled and things will actually come out okay. No matter what difficulty, no matter what storms you face in this life, there's guarantee. In fact, God tells us that our guarantee is that the Holy Spirit is living inside of us for those who believe in Christ. And what God has deposited in us, he will come back, Jesus will come back and reclaim. Now you might not know what chapter of life you're in, right? You, you might be in the season of brokenness where, where Naomi and Ruth find themselves at the beginning of the story. It might be hardships. You, you might have experienced some of the grace and, and the, the brightening of the dawn that's come up and where you see in chapters two and three. You don't know what chapter you're in. There might still be bumps. There will still be hurts. There will be pains, but God is at work. He is not silent, nor has he detached himself from you. He is near to those who are broken in spirit. He has paved a way for us to enter glory. Now, if you want to endure the broken road of this life and cross the threshold of glory, all you gotta do is trust Jesus. Say, God, I... I trust you more than I trust myself. Like we confessed this morning. I trust that you, can, you have the power to work all things together for my good and for your glory. And if your faith is in Jesus, then the Lord's Supper reminds us because Jesus was broken, because he was made empty, we are made full, that we are made whole, that we can be fulfilled And the road to glory, the destination of glory, isn't just one that awaits us out there someday. We can taste it now in God's nearness. It's it's a glory that starts now and goes forever into eternity. See, Jesus is the true and better Boaz. He's the true and better redeemer. He pulls you out and gives you a new hope. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you that he is really what the story of Ruth is all about. That he is the true and better redeemer. The one that we need. The one we're craving. The one we're longing for. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive him this morning, God. And even if there's somebody in the room this morning ready to step out, God, that you would give them the ability to confess that to you, to turn to Jesus and and put their faith in Christ. And give them a family to walk alongside of them. To endure the broken road to glory with others, that we may delight in your work and keep our eyes focused on you as we navigate our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.